Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. Our next guest is Charlie Cerati. I'm particularly happy to have him on the program today because Charlie not only runs um, a company that uh, provides tools to save money, but those tools are manufactured here in America. So uh, I'm doubly glad to have him on the program. Charlie, welcome to the program. Don, thank you so much for having me. I'm always excited to tell our story since we've helped companies uh, large and small reduce their uh, their operating costs and create some jobs along the way. Okay, so now tell us a, uh, a little bit about yourself before we go into anything else. Well, I, I appreciate you asking. Coming up on 20 years ago now, I wrote um, my thesis for the master's at the University of Pennsylvania and it was on energy intelligence. I called it then eco-humanism, and it was about saving money to operate buildings by doing generally intelligent things with energy, renewables, reduction of waste, all the things that we're now focused on. So it took 20 years, that was back in 1993, to really see the traction. And as an architect, you know, I started looking at many things in buildings, including the ceiling, to learn that about a third of typically electricity for a building is dedicated to lighting. And I thought, for decades, we've been using these old fluorescent tubes. There's got to be a better way to reduce the toxic factor of the mercury, to increase the longevity, and to cut down the cost. And so I've been an entrepreneur, you know, really inspired by my uh, father and grandfather and great-grandfather that all go back with patent, uh, you know, holdings and manufacturing and and everything down from plumbing and fire safety to even um, passive solar design. So it's it's something where I have a little bit in the DNA and uh, have taken it and run with it. Well, uh, that's interesting. But uh, before we get even further into it, 
Uh, you studied architecture. Tell us a little bit about yourself personally, a little bit more than that. You got it. So uh, coming out of um, high school down in Washington, D.C., I was um, drawn to the University of Virginia and studied architecture there and then came back to work in Washington for a couple years on some uh, some major projects. One of them was the um, University of Maryland Business School, where I was involved working directly with the contractors in the field for the construction administration. So I got to see firsthand how the builders worked, how the contracting worked, and, and then came back to graduate school, which was really, um, you know, in my early 20s, with kind of some uh, school of hard knocks, had, you know, kind of been in the trenches, to say uh, the least, with these builders. And it helped me shape the idea of building architecture that could have um, a responsibility to operating cost, meaning you buy a car, Don, and it tells you the miles per gallon and the cost of the car. As architects, we often didn't share with the owner the operating cost per square foot. And so personally, I thought that this was an opportunity to come out and start to tell a story about how we could create efficiency. And in graduate school, I had the, the good fortune of working for a professor. Kenya Mariyamu from Japan hired me to go work for him. And I got to see some things around the world that really opened my eyes to this idea of, again, sustainability and energy intelligence without sacrificing aesthetic and comfort. It was about quality, and it drove my whole, uh, whole career between the work, you know, between really undergrad and grad school and then the, and the travel overseas. Okay. And uh, now you're back here. Uh, you, you've done all this. You, you then started a company? That's right. So coming back into 2007, I had finished the home that I built with my wife and now have two children. It is a, uh, it's a solar home where we converted a 1950s ranch-style house in the suburbs of Philadelphia, out on the main line, and put about three years of research into it to double insulate the walls, radiant floor for the heating coming off of the sun, on-demand hot water heating, and, and obviously the smart lights. And I realized at that point I could tell a story and use the Internet through our sister company called greenandsave.com and started sharing information with people that would want from the residential as well as the, the commercial side to look for energy tactics based on one driver, return on investment. This wasn't about necessarily at that point the carbon. This was more about the dollars. And so what I found, and again, I appreciate you asking sort of about the background here before we dig into the lighting, is that no one had really ranked the return on investment based on different tactics. I mean, you could see an ad on TV for a hybrid car or compact fluorescent light bulbs, but it wasn't clear for your dollar over time which tactic would have the best payback. And so I built a whole series of master ROI calculator tables ranking hundreds of different tactics from residential and commercial down to programmable thermostats, you know, high-performance shower heads, the solar, the lighting, and gave people a guide. And they could click and learn. And then through that process, really came across the lighting in 2008 as a go-to, you know, for, for commercial energy efficiency. 
Are you are you saying then that uh, if you put the right uh, lighting on uh, in your office in your factory, you can uh, significantly improve your ROI in that investment? Absolutely. I'll give you one example of some math. If you have a 32-watt fluorescent tube, which is the most common of all common forms of lighting now in, in the world for commercial, that's the four-foot right white tube, we can bring that wattage down from 32 to 12. We can cut it by more than 50%. So what that means is if you are running in an exit stair, in a hotel, in an office building, in a dorm, any type of a data center, call center, convenience store, we are finding that those products typically might cost something in the nature of $30 to $40 a year to operate. Can you imagine a $3 fluorescent tube does not tell you when they advertise that it costs you know, over $30 to operate in certain environments? That would be like a car that was $30,000 that would cost $300,000 of gasoline. Crazy. So we can cut that number down and save you know, 20 or $25 in some cases per tube, and they get rebates. So is it worth spending with the labor something between $25 and even $50 to save $20 a year for the next decade? Right? Our tubes last up to 20 years. So what we're telling people, not unlike a hybrid car, is if you want the better gas mileage, it might cost a little bit more up front. But you recoup that money, right? Saving um, $20 by spending $40 is a 50% return on your money. That's a two-year payback. Hard to even touch it on Wall Street. Yes, but, but let's talk about that. So first, what is LED lighting? We all see it. We all hear it. But what is LED lighting? lighting? Okay, so, so light-emitting diodes are basically the solid-state form of illumination that we can now run with drivers. So the driver is like the starter to the car, and we put these diodes, these little chips, basically on printed circuit boards, and we charge them. We run an electrical current through the printed circuit board to get them to glow. We've seen them for many, many years in equipment like our VCRs. If you remember way back in the, in the 80s, you'd have that little red flashing light on your VCR. Well, that was a, an LED. It was a light-emitting diode. The challenge with LEDs is to keep them cool. And so if you have many of them in a row, like for an LED tube that re replaces fluorescent, or in our case, parking garage fixtures or big warehouse lighting fixtures with many, many diodes, they get hot. They get really hot. And so the challenge becomes how to keep them cool. Now, by really hot, I'm not talking about as hot as fluorescent, which is exciting, you know, the mercury um, vapor, but hot relative to semiconductors. So what we need to do is use, in our case, deep fin aluminum. This is aircraft-grade aluminum heat sinks. So it's not as easy as just getting the little diodes to light up, those little dots. And what we found, and this was one of the drivers to bringing the technology from China in, in 2010 to uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, is the cost of shipping that aluminum, the cost of the quality assurance in everything over in Asia was just too high. 
and we found a, a more cost-effective way to do it here in, here in the United States. But I hope that gives you some context that, that not all LEDs are created equal. It's how you manage and control the heat to maintain the longevity, the efficiency, and then the color of the light itself. Well, how, I've always been curious. How do you create different colors? Um, great, great question. The, the phosphor that is the coating is in effect going from what is a, a native state of more like a bluish white light towards the more comfortable yellow, creamier colors. So we reference Kelvin in the industry. Kelvin is the measure of, of color temperature. What is most common in offices is between 3,500 Kelvin and 4,000 Kelvin, which is really called sort of neutral. Then 5,000 Kelvin is a bright white light, which begins to have that slightly bluish tint. If you want to go warmer, like the incandescent light, which is, you know, the classic Edison bulb, that's typically in the 25 to 2700 Kelvin range. And we can control with our technology, made, again, right here in the United States, the color the customers want by the layers of phosphor that are put on the diodes. So what we end up with is a standard is typically warm, neutral, cool, like three flavors to choose from. And then we have provided custom applications for certain customers on demand. <laughs> this is really interesting. Uh, I've always uh, wondered a, a lot uh, about this. Uh, and the great thing about being a reporter is you get to ask a lot of good uh, questions about it. <laughs> sure. But now, a small business, um, can't. Cash flow is, is the critical matrix of small business. If I heard you right, you're saying, yes, my, right now uh, my product and other products like it uh, may cost more uh, in the beginning, but you save it down the road. Is, am I correct on that? You, you are correct, and I will only add a note, which is if someone is in the business of um, growing their company without a cash reserve, we have built zero upfront cost financing into our offering, which means if you ran a small business, call it a restaurant, call it a, um, a, a local um, warehouse or distribution center, you know, even a, a school administrator, what will happen is you're outside of your budget when it comes to the LEDs. And we say, don't give us any money. Let, let's say we showed you, you know, $10,000 of a retrofit for a small, you know, a, a restaurant or an office, and they would say, well, I only have a couple thousand dollars in the budget to change the lights every year, so I'm going to pass. I'm going to wait. And we say, how about we give you all $10,000 of the lights with the installation labor, and we are going to project based on counting the lights and the runtime that you have that you are going to save $5,000 a year. And they say, I get it, but I don't have the money up front. And we say, okay, $5,000 a year is about $400 of monthly savings. So how about you give us $300? So the PICO or the electric bill, in the case of Philadelphia, it's, it's PICO. You know, maybe it's Con Ed in New York. Maybe it's Pepco in D.C., wherever. 
if the bill is five hundred, four or five hundred dollars less each month, and they give us three hundred dollars, they have not spent a single penny, Don, and they are saving money every single month at an excess of what they are paying out for the product. And over that second or third year, they will have in effect bought the product through what we call a lighting service contract or these zero upfront cost financing plans. It's very competitive. It, it very definitely is. What's the name of your company and your and your uh, website? Independence LED, and the website is independenceled.com. Okay, now let's talk about, and we'll get back to uh, to this. We're, we're talking with Charlie Cerati, um, and we're talking about LED. But now uh, what I found interesting also is you manufacture here in the United States. In fact, uh, compete against Chinese competitors. How do you do it, and why do you do it? It's a great, great question, Don. Thank you. It comes up, it comes up a lot. Back in 2008-9, when we were developing this technology, we had partners over in, um, in Asia, and we started to see a breakdown in the color consistency, and we realized we were going to have to put bodies on the ground in Asia. It was going to cost more than we had hoped in the margin to really get the product here to the United States. We also looked at the heat and how it was dissipated, and we realized we needed to use this deep fin aluminum extrusion and our external drivers that had basically earned, you know, the engineering stamp of approval. So we we looked at the math, and, you know, moving 10,000 miles from Asia to the eastern seaboard aluminum was just cost prohibitive, and we pulled out the satellite map of the world from NASA and saw that the brightest spot is between Washington, D.C. and New York, the Northeast Corridor, and we parked our business right here in southeastern PA, two and a half hours drive each direction to service what is, you know, over 20% of the U.S. uh, population, as well as the whole country, and now we're even exporting to, uh, to around the world. So it was a combination of quality and also the money in terms of shipping. What we can do now with four these are $1.5 million automated uh, pick-and-place assembly machines. Is run um, over 15,000 diodes an hour, and we have a tolerance of one one-thousandth of an inch. So we have an excellent product. We have earned the uh, respect of the U.S. Navy. We're on over 25 Navy ships. The Fortune 100 with big corporate accounts ranging from MetLife to Morgan Stanley's corporate headquarters in New York City all the way down to the small businesses, some of which, like one of our favorites, the local Braxton's Animal Works, has had our lights in, you know, for over four years now. So it's a great, it's a great story about, I think, American uh, engineering and uh, agility to be competitive in a global market. Well, you're a, I'm a small business. Um, I have, <coughs> excuse me, two, um, maybe an office, uh, uh, 2,500 square feet total. Uh, what would be uh, um, uh, an installation and cost, etc., in, in such an operation? I mean, would it be profitable for me to do it? So here's here's what I will tell you. The average um, fixture has two or three, even sometimes four fluorescent tubes 
that use those, um, you know, 32 watts each. So typically, according to the ASHRAE standard, you've got, um, you know, 32 square feet per tube because it's about one watt per square foot. So I would guess that you have something in the nature of 70 to 80 tubes over 2,500 square feet. If they each had four, um, you know, tubes in them, you might have something like, you know, are there 15 to 20 fixtures, two-foot by four-foot fixtures as a, as a guide? We go in and ask those kind of questions and do that kind of math to then come back and prepare for you what is a savings report proposal. We ask questions about, for example, Don, are you in there from 8 in the morning till 6 p.m.? You know, is it like 10 hours a day versus 12? Do you have any lights that are left on overnight for um, security? What is your cost of electricity? And then we get into the weeds with your utility company to see if they have any rebates. So it's a, it's a short answer, which is yes, we can help you. The longer answer is we want to show you how it works mathematically, and then we want to get in your hands a sample set of the lights so you can review the quality of the output of light and the math. And if both of those sync up, Don, we get a new customer. Oh, that sounds exciting. Um, uh, if people were interested in um, learning more, can they uh, call you or uh, talk to you? Because we have they a lot of our uh, listeners just pick up the phone afterwards. Sure. I'll give the phone number here at corporate. It's 484-588-5401. Do that again. 484-588-5401. And that's here in suburban Philadelphia. And independenceled.com is the website that also has that phone number listed. You know, uh, I'm just a little bit overawed by this because it makes so much sense. How do you plan to expand? Would you put another facility on the West Coast? Uh, or would you – what would be your expansion? Don, you're, you're a, um, a sage because we are working now with a company on the West Coast outside of Sacramento to build a West Coast facility to keep the cost contained for the, the, um, the West Coast installations and uh, really have it at, at two ends of the country. We've had interest from Canada. We've had interest from Brazil and in Eastern Europe as well for these micro-manufacturing hubs. So the idea for expansion is not necessarily to have a Detroit-like um, macro headquarters for car manufacturing, but think of them as smaller kitchens where we bring all the ingredients in, we have the recipe, and we're locally making more product to get into the local businesses. And that may be the future of a global economy that because of proximity, to um, shipping channels for, uh, you know, major, major deliveries, it's fine and good to have big boats. But if you can use rail and if you can use vehicles to get things within a couple hours, 
you know, of where they're made. That is possibly the, the, the future of American manufacturing. And we're happy to have played a, a role in sort of this new generation of thinking about building efficiency and energy intelligence because reducing the waste, right, the what not used is infinitely more cost-effective than trying to make electricity with solar and wind, right? We don't, we don't have any problem with solar and wind. In fact, some of our clients have solar on the roof, but they were wasting half of it into inefficient lighting. We came in to change the lights, and now the solar powers 100% of the illumination versus half. We have built some of the first net zero cost of illumination buildings in the United States, so if we can make more factories close to where the end user is working, all the better. Well, how do you find the installers for, for your products? Great, great question, Don. And the good news is unlike uh, specialized skills for, say, putting up a wind turbine or solar, this is the ultimate clean tech efficiency because any licensed electrician in the United States, if not the world, has changed an old inefficient fluorescent ballast for a new upgrade. That is like changing out the starter for a car or a mechanic changing a tire on the vehicle. So all we do is when we leave the fixture intact is have the installers open the panel, they take the the, uh, feed line, the line voltage, into the ballast and they connect it to the driver and that driver powers the, uh, the tubes. So it's a, it's a very simple, easy uh, installation that we also train for in a series of LED boot camps. So we have live sessions here for just show and tell on how to do it, as well as for sales training. And if anyone that is interested is not in the region that would like to participate as either sales representatives or authorized resellers or installers, their jobs on the table and we can do training as well remotely because we shot some digital um, video training modules and we have webinars. So this is a call to arms. Don, this is about strength in numbers where as a country we can save hundreds of millions of dollars a year in electricity cost, state by state, starting with you know all kinds of businesses and public works buildings from firehouses and police stations to really make an impact and not wait for the, uh, the next best renewable technology, but just start cutting the waste today out of the ceiling. Uh, I, uh, it sounds fantastic. As you were talking, I was mentally thinking of who I knew to, to, to call you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but let, let me go back. I have an old fixture. I have a fluorescent fixture up there. Are you saying... They just they just disconnect that uh, fixture and put in the new one, or do they uh, install inside the old fixture? So we start by installing inside the old fixture for this reason. Think of it as an old townhouse that has an outdated furnace. We'd rather keep your building so that it doesn't end up in the landfill than just throw it away. Right? This is the idea of reduce, reuse, recycle. Right? We're reducing the watts and we're reusing the fixture as opposed to taking it out. Now, in certain markets, 
we would come in and say it's as easy as stripping out the, um, the inside. The tubes go. They are under a controlled recycling since they have mercury in them, so we can't just throw them away, right, because that's a toxin. So now we're going to clean up your uh, ceiling, not only reduce the 32 watts down to 12, right, and cut your, cut your electricity bill for lighting in half, but we're going to take the toxins out. There's not going to be cycling. There's not going to be discoloration. And what we're going to do is give you a choice where if in a certain market, and this has happened in New Jersey, the rebates from the utility company do not come in as high for replacing the tubes as replacing the whole fixture. So in certain markets, we have designed a fixture that can be replaced that is a glowing panel as well as one that is called a, uh, a side basket or a center basket, parabolic, acrylic prismatic, dozens of choices for different new fixtures. So if you want a new house, we can give you a new house. But we typically don't recommend it first. Right? We'd rather save your old house and just change out the, the guts than, uh, than build a new one. But, hey, math tells the story. Right? If the rebate is bigger for a new fixture, we have that option. Uh, again, if people want to reach you, reach you or your company? It's 484-588-5401, and that's independenceled.com. We're interested in end users. We're interested in uh, joining up with resellers and recruiting uh sales representatives all across the, uh, the spectrum. So I love this audience, Don, and, and appreciate the opportunity today. Well, we appreciate that you came uh, uh, today because uh, I, I certainly learned a lot, and I know our audience did as well. Thank you so much for being uh, with us today, Charlie. Thank you, Don. Have a great one. Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2hsa.com. That's 2hsa.com. Well, our next guest hails from the Yukon. Uh, the only thing I know about the Yukon is Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, but that's another generation. But uh, Joy Carp uh, joins us today, and she has an uh, unusual life and an unusual book, and we'll start with our usual question. Uh, Joy, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, which I think may be a little exciting for our audience. Okay, well, you know, I started off, I suppose, um, in the McDonald's system. I was given a project to try and reduce turnover, and the book was called the McDonald's Hands-On Business Training Program, and it was about uh, promoting from within. And um, during, before that, I had had um, two heart attacks at a very young age, uh, age 21, and another one at age 33, which was massive but undiagnosed. They thought it was stomach problems. Um, I didn't feel very well over those years, but I continued to work. 
Eventually, um, after working for a very progressive licensee who gave me that project uh, to write that book, uh, we got our own McDonald's restaurant, which is how we ended up in Whitehorse, Yukon. We were born and raised in Ottawa, Ontario, and then moved to Kingston, and then we moved to uh, Whitehorse, Yukon, and our McDonald's had... um, the biggest sales for the first month of any McDonald's restaurant in the world until Russia opened. Uh, so it was a really hectic experience. Um, after that, while, while I, we were owner-operators of McDonald's, I was kidnapped. And um, I was buried underground for 16 hours. Um, and it was, uh, as you can imagine, a very traumatic experience. I was chained three ways with handcuffs and as you know you can't if your feet are handcuffed uh, handcuffs don't move and if you try to move they get tighter and tighter i was also blindfolded and this was in my car they buried me and on a mountain top and they put branches all around the car intertwined so that i couldn't get out and told me there was a sniper watching if i tried to get out Um, I was kidnapped from my home, by the way. And then after that experience, I decided um, to just throw myself back into uh, our restaurant. And uh, that's where I found my passion for service. I just got very stuck on service and what it could do for people, what it could do for our people, what it could do for the customers. I, I had to focus on something very positive. And that was my focus. Um, As a result, we won many service awards for McDonald's, outstanding store awards, uh, the most prestigious award, the Ronald Award. Um, And um, so that was one of the triumphs during both the traumatic event. Um, Then after the kidnapping, I had to have a quadruple bypass the following year. And um, after that quad bypass, something happened to me. Um, I had tremors. I was in Vancouver. We were going to a convention, and I had tremors all over my body. And what I didn't understand was this was post-traumatic stress disorder setting in one year later. Something I had never believed in before uh, was happening to me. Um, It was so bad that when we flew back to Whitehorse, we went straight to the hospital to get some medications because nobody can live that way. And um, I did get some medicated help at that point and then continued uh, to work on. And uh, then um, once we had to sell our McDonald's due to medical reasons in the year 2000 after 13 years as, on our, as owner-operators. And um, then I was commissioned to uh, write a course on service for business people. I created the course. It was very in-depth. It was two days long, and um, did this and and taught it to several hundred business people um, from all over the place in small groups. And it seemed to have a very positive effect. The feedback was excellent. And then, unfortunately, I got breast cancer, a very aggressive breast cancer. So that was interrupted. Um, uh, that beautiful service experience I had was interrupted um, by the cancer, and I went through a mastectomy, bilateral mastectomy, which means both breasts removed. 
and also um, chemotherapy, followed by 30 radiation treatments. So it took up a good part of my life, um, you know, the curing of breast cancer, which was complicated by the heart issues as well. And then when that I got through that, I decided I wanted to write a book on service. I wanted to get back on a positive track. And here I am. And the name of your book? The Power of Service, Service Through the Eyes of Customers. By uh, Joy E. Carp, K-A-R-P. K-A-R-P, right. Okay. Now, boy, that's some opening. <laughs> I haven't heard that one in a while. Uh, in fact, I don't, uh, I don't think uh, any of our guests have ever kind of opened like that. <laughs> let, uh, let's I go back now. I forgot the car accident and the uh, burning down of our house, but that's okay. <laughs> Your book should really be overcoming adversity to triumph. You know, I uh, people have asked me why I didn't put more of myself into the book, and that's because um, I I believe that it would have uh, you know covered the subject of service is what I wanted to do. So it, the book is a story, it is an allegory, you know, and it has characters, um, and the characters experience service, good and bad throughout, and it's full of ideas. Um, however, uh, the events that relate to my life in the book are minor events. I, I didn't want to put in any of the dramatic stuff. Okay. Now, having said all that, um, give us three three ideas you have about service and and how you're different uh, from your book differs. Well, you, uh, you don't have to know that, but just tell us what are some of the key points. Uh, of your book. Okay, that's that's a really good question. Um, first of all, one of the key points is providing great service applies everywhere. Government departments, agencies, suppliers, tourism, all retail outlets and businesses, not just to restaurants as some people would believe. Um, secondly, uh, how good and bad service impacts people, how it impacts sales, profitability, your own personal success, and even an entire community. Um, thirdly, what is authentic service? Because that's the only kind of service that's going to work. We get to the core of what great service is. Next, we have solutions and ways to build service level. And finally, relationship building. Building relationships, uh, professional and personal, is something we all have to do if we are going to achieve success. And how is my book different? Um, I wanted to write a book, Dawn, that really got to the core of great service, but at the same time I wanted to keep the reader engaged. I didn't want it to be a how-to manual, you know, and, and put people to sleep. So I created a story where the characters um, uh, experience service experiences. And, they did, and as they do that, they talk about them and come up with solutions. Um, to all the problems and um, how they react to the good experiences and how that eventually led to their own success. So I think that makes it very different It's because it is a story. Someone said they didn't know whether to put it on their novel shelf or their business shelf and decided this was a reviewer 
decided to put it on their business shelf because it was so full of good ideas, quote-unquote. Okay, so now let's tempt the audience. What are, are some of your good ideas? Well, gee, don't you want them to read the book, Don? <laughs> well, you, that's what you want. You okay, can't come well, on I'm and gonna, just say I'm that. I'm share those with you. I, you, um, you, you, okay, you have to give sorry, them something. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry? Um, some of my good, yeah, good ideas are um, you can't have outstanding service uh, unless you really care about the customer. And you, that means that in your heart you have to believe that service really matters. Now, the thing is that if your employees don't believe that, then you're really not going to get anywhere. And in order for your employees to believe that, you have to take an interest in your people. And you have to work with them to show them what authentic service really is. And you do that by leading by example. You know, and that is how you're going to get great service in a nutshell. So you're saying, in effect, uh, whenever you're behind the counter, you, you, you act as concerned about it as they should act. Yeah, but, I, but I'm not acting. I really believe it because, you know, it's like when you're people watching. You ever, have you ever sat on a bench and watched people and wondered, gee, I wonder what goes on under that person's roof? I, you know, I wonder why that person looks unhappy today. Have you ever done that? Oh, I'm a reporter. I do that all the time. Okay, there you go. That is how you approach each customer that comes to the counter or wherever. It's not always a counter. It, you might be entering a furniture store, right? That is how you, you think about that person as an individual. And you, meanwhile, you're observing that person. You're observing their body language, um, and, and therefore getting a feel for what it is they need. And, you know, it's like learning golf. You start off slowly, and slowly, because you do really care, you start to learn about people. And by taking the attention off yourself and putting it onto the other person, there, that is a very gratifying feeling, I can tell you. And you have to experience it in order to understand what I'm talking about. Well, uh, I, I've been a reporter a long time, so I always have to uh, do that uh, to understand uh, people. Well, give us another point in your book. Well, another point in the book is the, uh, and we spend a lot of time on this, is the difference between authentic service and cheap service. And I use a two-tables analogy for, um, with these two tables, we have one that is uh, was made a very long time ago. It has beautiful craftsmanship. It was built piece by piece. Um, it's got no nail showing. It's absolutely gorgeous and stunning um, and real. Then we've got another table. It looks very nice. Uh, it was very cheap. Uh, looks like it has tiles on top, but they're not really top uh, tiles at all. And, um, of course, the, the cheap table falls apart in a year, and the other table lasts forever. Um, and that is what the, a great service experience can do, you see. Great service experience will bring the customer back. And if you're not, there's, there's only four ways you can increase your sales and profit. One is to increase your prices. Another one is to 
decrease your costs, um, which often leads to labor cuts, which is not a good idea. Um, another one is to bring have people who are already customers come back more often. And the last one is to increase your market share by bringing in new customers. Well, the best of those is to have more return visits by your existing customers. Now, how are you going to do that? Well, there's one thing common to all people, and that is we want to feel good. And so if someone makes us feel good, we want to replicate that, that feeling once again. And although we're not conscious of that fact, we will veer towards going back to that place the next time we need something like that piece of furniture or our food. We're going to gravitate to that place because the memory is that we felt good, and that's the essence. Well, that's the, uh, the, the good-feeling way of, uh, uh, of selling, and it's a good point. But let's take a step further. Sure. What do you do in, in your situations when a customer is dissatisfied? Well, it depends upon the dissatisfaction. For example, if, if the customer is um, using bad language, um, if the customer is totally obnoxious, um, and if the customer is lying, is obviously lying, um, then, you know, that perhaps no one anywhere will be able to pacify that customer. And we have to understand that although we're aiming for 100%, if we get 95% satisfied customers, that is excellence. Um, now, the other type of uh, dissatisfied customer who even if they have a 15% point um, out of everything they're saying, we want to keep that customer. So I say be as generous as you can. And in that case, although the customer, you know, is the customer always right? You now the customer is not always right. But we want that customer back because if we do not get that customer back, they're going to go out and tell 20 people what a terrible experience they have. So we're going to bend over backwards for that customer and do something for them right then and there. Well, let me give you an example that actually happened in a McDonald's in upstate New York a couple of weeks ago. Okay. A man uh, came in with three children. Uh, there must have been four, uh, 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 probably a grandmother. There were four or five or six people. And obviously he had a complicated order. But he had to go back five times in order to get that order in a McDonald's uh, right. What do you do in a situation like that? In that case, was our manager on hand? There must have been. It was a busy time. Okay. It was just before parade. But I didn't see. I, I did not see anybody interfere. And the man, the man was clearly irked by the time he had finished. By the time he went up for the fifth time. He was clearly irked. Well, yes, even if he had to go back once, it, it's enough to frustrate a customer. But more than once, it's just that could just uh, frustrate a person to death. Um, in that case, here, here's what didn't happen. The manager, there should have been a, a, well, a manager well-trained on service. We call them service managers, and they should have been on hand, there has to be a manager at the front counter or the front of wherever it is uh, 
that what you have, whatever kind of retail or, or business you have. There has to be a manager up front who really understands and cares about service. That manager should have been there. You're saying that you didn't see anyone that left that person not knowing what the heck to do and, and probably were not focused. Uh, they, they just were not focused. That person should be taken off service and put somewhere else in that, like the kitchen, for example. Um, you know, you just can't afford to lose customers. You know, uh, customers are, are, are worth everything to a business. Without them, there would be no business. And, of course, owners know that, but oftentimes we start blaming customers for things instead of our people. And there is a time to back your people, you know, especially someone who's been with you a long time. Um, but in that case, uh, there's just no excuse. And the problem is there was no service manager, and that's why that happened. Well, let me give you another example that just happened uh, about two hours ago. I went to our local post office, which was for many years uh, the epitome of good service. Uh, they changed postmasters, and it's gone downhill. But the place was deserted, and I came in. And the woman behind the counter, a young woman, uh, she was doing packages. And I'm standing in front of her, and she continued to do the packages, uh, you know, the, that someone had dropped off, rather than take care of, of me. Uh. And, and so um, me being my usual self and observing people, finally said to her after she did the fifth package, when are you going to take care of me? And she looked at me and said, when I finish. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Okay, that, that just makes uh, me quiver here in my chair. Now, you see, here's the thing. Whether she was stocking shelves or chatting with another employee or packaging whatever she was packaging, she thinks that packaging is as important as you are. No one has pointed out to her or followed up to tell her that service is the most important thing. Serving customers is everything. So she, what in her, in her business, she thinks that each thing is equal, that, you know, packaging is equal to service, that chatting with another employee, the customer should stand there and wait while she's finished the conversation. You know, you can see the lack of training and the lack of follow-up. You've got all sorts of people wandering around the post office doing nothing and or someone sitting at their desk staring at numbers. Uh, you know, numbers do not bring in people. People bring in people. And this is why, I mean, you have to have someone up there who cares about service whether it is the supervisor, the manager, someone always has to be up there, always. Even if the service manager has to go to the washroom, they ask another manager or a senior person who they know cares about service to go up front and manage that area. Well, yeah. well I just learned something new. I never thought of it that way, about, the, in effect, the hierarchy customer comes first the other things come second Absolutely. we have a we have a local local walmart in which half the uh, staff does not speak english mm. and, and, and uh, i'm in new jersey um uh, the name of your book again because um, 
I stepped over your line. Say it again. The power of service, service through the eyes of customers. And if people wanted to reach you directly, do you have a website? Yes, it is uh, 3W's dot uh, the power of service by jecarp.com. Wow, now that's a mouthful. So spell uh, yes, it out I for our audience. It's simpler, but um, the, the uh, Internet wouldn't take it. It's taken, taken, taken. So that's what we got. So, so say it again, because it's a long the one. Power of Service by jecarp.com. Okay. And uh, if they want to call you directly, because uh, do you want to give them a number they can reach you at? You don't uh, well, have to. I can but... tell you this. Yes, I will give you a number. They can also uh, acquire the book through Amazon, Amazon.com, um, and Amazon.ca, um, so they can order directly from there. It is also available Amazon Kindle for those who like the Kindle format, and it's available on Barnes and Noble as an ebook and all the other ebook sites. But the paperback is available on Amazon. If they want a phone number where they can call for the book. Um, that would be 867-667-7545. And well, that is the uh, Chamber of Commerce who has um, uh, will send out books as well. And we also have a local store, a Max Bookstore, who will send it out. But I suggest Amazon. That seems to be where people like to order from if they want the paperback. And, and what town are you in in Canada? We are in the capital of the Yukon, Whitehorse. Well, one thing about Canadian names, they're colorful. Yes. <laughs> like Saskatchewan. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you pronounce it. I always have trouble with it. Yeah. But anyway, uh, thank you, Joy, for a really interesting uh, time. And, oh, uh, thank you, Don. You ask great questions. I've been at it a long time. Yeah, that shows. Uh, well, the, the idea is to let the guest talk, not me. Right. So. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, my was dry. You you allowed me to talk so much. <laughs> Better you than me, because <laughs> you're the expert. But, oh, thank you so very much. It's been great. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, then. I hope so. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.